0: Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. distinguished guest is Tony Juniper, Chair of Natural England. Natural England is the government advisor for the natural environment in England, with a role to conserve, enhance and manage the natural environment, including monitoring and protecting the country's most valuable habitats, such as sites of special scientific interest and natural nature reserves. Natural England will advise the government on environmental policy, planning and licensing. Tony himself has a rich background as a campaigner, writer, advisor, and environmentalist. Tony, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast. Hello. Big welcome. So, Tony, um, let's get going. The preservation... Restoration and management and creation of new habitats to enhance the natural world, uh, to contribute co- contribute to climate change mitigation, adaption, biodiversity and human well-being is very much in the spotlight at the moment and increasingly so. The momentum is certainly gathering pace, particularly in the year of COP26 and let's not forget COP15 the biodiversity conference in China in October. In addition, the government's 10-point plan at point nine centres on the protection of the natural environment. So with all of this activity and focus, could we start with you explaining the role of natural England in the delivery of these positive objectives?
1: Well, thank you, Josephine. Yes, yeah, so so Natural England is uh, a, a government agency, a government-funded agency, we're a so-called arm's-length body. So we have a degree of independence in parallel to the policies and laws that are um, designed by ministers and enacted by Parliament. And our job really is to ensure the delivery of those policies and laws. And we have several headings under which we pursue that um, broad goal. So one is through being the government's policy advisor on the natural environment, uh, and so giving advice, science-based advice uh, to ministers on how they can achieve their goals. Uh, We are also a regulatory body, and so we do discharge various decisions as an official agency For example, in relation to wildlife management licensing, uh, sometimes we do need to manage wildlife and that involves both the control of some wildlife at times, but also reintroductions. So a wide range of of, uh, duties that we have there. And then we also designate national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty, national nature reserves and sites of special scientific interest all of which now cover 26% of England, so a very substantial area of land. And on top of being um, an advisory agency and a regulatory body, we are also a delivery body of government policy. So, for example, uh, there has been over many years and will be into the future uh, policies that encourage farmers to improve wildlife and the environment in farmed landscapes, And we have been an advisor which has been working with landowners to make those schemes work over over many, many years. And so we're quite a complicated body doing all of those different things and all of that underpinned by a very strong science capability. Uh, We need to be able to have uh, embedded expertise in order to be able to do all of those jobs. And so that, broadly speaking, is is the kind of official role, uh, set of official roles that we play Increasingly, we are also convening lots of different partners um, from different sectors. So not only farmers, but also water companies, house builders, the non-governmental conservation agencies, local government, other government departments, to try and bring people uh, into uh, the kinds of collaborations which are necessary to turn the tide of ecological decline. Because it's all very well um, setting targets, but in the end, they have to be delivered. And when you look at the scale of what we need to do, you realise that one small nature reserve is not going to do what's needed. Mm -hmm. And we're going to need collaboration at the scale of entire landscapes. And that does require us to be working with a very wide range of partners, not just expecting to do the work on our own. So it's um, it's a it's a complex organisation, but one that increasingly I think can see what it needs to be doing and, and is getting better at doing it.
0: And can I just clarify how much do coastal zones fall within your remit?
1: So we are the uh, conservation body advisor on the natural environment on land, working in partnership with colleagues at the Environment Agency and the Forestry Commission in particular. And then uh, we are the body that advises on the marine environment out to uh, 12 nautical miles. Uh, and then beyond that, uh, it is the Joint Nature Conservation Committee, which is uh, the UK nature conservation body, which sits across ourselves, our Welsh, Northern Ireland and Scottish counterparts. So a complicated picture for sure.
0: Yeah, a complicated picture, and you've set out very articulately the, the framework within which natural England sort of operates. Can I start with a question that really gets to the heart of individual engagement with the natural world? When we think about how we devise scientific and economic solutions for the natural environment, how do we redress the balance between the individual's relationship with nature? Because unless we get that right, it's very difficult to engage around solutions.
1: Well, there, there, there are multiple levels at, at which action is needed, uh, and they all relate to each other. Uh, and so one that you know gets a lot of attention is the role of government in the choices it makes in terms of allocation of public money, decisions it makes on protection of particular areas or to go ahead with particular developments. So government obviously is a key player. Then there's increasingly the the role of the private sector and the finance sector who decide to invest in particular business activities or to deploy capital in particular ways. And those decisions have fundamental bearings on the outcomes that occur. And then there's, of course, all of us, uh, all of the citizens Uh, who in different ways shape the outcomes that are observed as we go along. And the role of the citizen, I think, increasingly uh, is becoming very, very clear. And it's not only as a result of whether we do our recycling or whether we are uh, buying local food and some of these things that generally point towards better environmental footprints It's also the extent to which we shape the culture of our society and the extent to which we regard ourselves as as a pro-nature society. And that actually is something that has changed over the last few years. I've really felt it. And you you see it in lots of different ways. And, you know, it ranges from, you know, the output in the media of of nature-related content. It's now huge the number of books that have been published over recent years with nature themes, absolutely huge. The footfall in national parks, nature reserves, and green spaces, which has been pushed up massively by COVID, which has put supercharges on this whole cultural shift to the point today where I think, you know, the idea that nature is important for society and people and individuals, you know, it's no longer really anything to be debated. And then once you get to that point, that's when it really starts to have a spillover effect on politics and on companies. What, what's your view
0: of the evolution of the economic value assessment then of, of natural resources, where we are today on that and where we need to be?
1: Well, we, we've had an economic valuation of natural resources for forever. You know, ever since trade was invented, we've been, you know, shipping timber, fish, minerals, fossil fuels, you know, all of those things you'd call natural resources. Mm. I I make a big distinction between all of that and the value of nature, Mm. which has been much less appreciated. And when you look at the value of our natural world through the prism of resources, it makes perfect sense to liquidate it and sell it so to cut down the forest and sell the timber. If, on the other hand, you look at the value of nature, you soon realise, for reasons of carbon capture, of water security, food security, conservation of biodiversity, disaster risk reduction, that the value of the forest intact as a natural system is actually much bigger than when you've turned it into so-called natural resources. And so this has been a much more recent shift in understanding and it starts probably in around 2005 with the publication of the millennium ecosystem assessment followed about five years later with the publication of the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity followed by work at the world bank amongst other places uh, looking at the value of natural systems to economic and social systems and then the work of the natural capital Committee in this country, followed by most recently the outputs of the review led by Professor Sapartha Dasgupta, uh, the Mm -hmm. so-called Dasgupta review. And those more recent studies confirm that the value of nature, i.e. functioning natural systems that haven't been turned into Mm
0: -hmm.
1: material commodities are of incalculable value to the economy. And without them, we don't have an economy. And indeed, some of the work done by Robert Costanza and his colleagues reveals uh, estimates to the scale of the value of nature being considerably bigger than global GDP. I mean, th- these are the kinds of numbers that come through. But it's been invisible value. And you know, we've continued to see the real value expressed as resources that can be traded rather than fixed assets that bring enormous dividends over time, if only we allow them to exist. And so, you know, this is very recent, and I think explains somewhat the big shift that's taken place in policy recently, because it wasn't so long ago, and you still get some of this now, actually, whereby you get quite um, senior figures in the policymaking world, who would have us believe that looking after the environment and looking after nature actually is a block to economic development. It's it's slowing us down. It's harming competitiveness. It's getting in the way of job creation and, you know, so on and so forth. And that um, particular understanding, the shift in that, I would say is probably the most important thing that's happened in the 30 years that I've been involved with these environmental subjects is to see that shift away from, you know, the idea that, you know, we have to sacrifice nature to grow the economy, it's the price of progress, to now understanding that actually, without nature, we don't have any progress at all.
0: Indeed, and it highlights that tension, doesn't it, between the macro view of the interdependency of the different planetary boundaries that Johan Rockström explained so well, and the localised view of my experience in my region and my way of life um and the, unless we understand mm-hmm. that bigger picture of our dependency on the uh, wider natural resources exactly. uh, or nature itself yeah. as you as you described yeah. so articulately yeah. um then we're missing the point
1: yeah i mean it's it's not been without some controversy this idea that nature has these massive embedded economic values i mean some environmentalists take against that and say That you know, we shouldn't be valuing nature for its economic contribution. We should be valuing it for its own sake, to which I say it's not a choice. It's not either or. You can have both. It's valuable for its own sake and also it happens to be vital for the economy. And also on top of that, it's aesthetically beautiful. And also on top of that, it's got spiritual dimensions. And all of these things can coexist, in my opinion
0: indeed and I think and I think it supports i mean we we recently had a discussion with professor Robin atfield on environmental ethics and and one obviously the premise there that we were all agreeing on was that nature itself has intrinsic value but how you convert that into economic value is I guess a ne- very necessary point you know when we start to think about how we respect nature but also, direct capital towards nature-based
1: solutions? It depends if you're serious about saving the natural world or not. I mean, if, if you argue that um, nature is intrinsically valuable and should be conserved only for that reason, with no economic valuation, then you will probably fail uh, mm. because most people, mm. we've discovered over 100 years of effort, mm. don't necessarily find the intrinsic argument completely persuasive. Whereas the economic argument does seem to have created a breakthrough. Scientifically, it's not wrong. You know, there may be some kind of human value systems uh, that lie behind the approach some people take and not wishing to see that economic um, dimension. But in taking that view, you kind of, it's self-defeating. I sometimes point out to some of the very radical environmentalists who resist the economic evaluation approach of nature to point out to them the only other people who seem to say that are the very extreme free market right-wing economists who yeah. actually would agree with them yes let's keep nature outside of the economic evaluation so we can cut it down catch it and turn it into money and mm-hmm. that um, is what they have been doing for many decades without challenge mm-hmm. until we've got to the point that we're at today
0: I guess it seems kind of criminal, doesn't it, to attribute a monetary value to something that's so beautiful and natural, you know? But I guess maybe that's something that we have to do in the short term in order to act in the in the way and at the speed in which we have to. Um, do you think that understanding that shift that you're talking about um, in understanding the value of nature? Do you think that's happening quickly enough?
1: Well, it's happened very quickly, and and uh, as always. The, the the challenge is going to be turning the realisation into things that actually happen. So converting the understanding into solutions, the delivery of the actual change. I was actually speaking to some colleagues this morning who were reflecting on the extent to which a, a lot of this discussion is around refining you know, the nature of the problem and defining the kinds of approaches that we think are going to work. And actually relatively little time is put into working through the solutions. And uh, you know, and, and we we you know reach a, a conclusion about a problem, but then don't do the solutions because we haven't fully understood exactly all the implications of them. And so that's where we're at on this, I think. And you know, having understood that there is a gap between the way we do economics and the real world, in the sense of nature being invisible, even though it is the most vital asset for economic development, then what do you do about that? And you know, it's a number of things, and You know, one thing, I I guess, is uh, to simply make the state of nature visible in how you determine national economic accounts. And so for most countries, you know, they wouldn't be growing. Economic growth wouldn't be determined to be the case if you subtract the damage that has occurred as a result of the depletion of natural capital. Mm -hmm. As you're removing your soils, removing your fish stocks, depleting your aquifers, Uh, making your pollinating insects go extinct, uh, making your climate less stable, none of these things are being counted against the calculation of of GDP going up. And so, you know, there are some quite fundamental things that now need to occur in terms of how how we take this on to the next stage. I'm delighted to see this shift in discussion to the point now where we can understand that peat bogs, for example, are not just wet wastelands, they are carbon sinks and water purification systems mm. of incalculable value. And it's only recently that that has become a mainstream view. So we should celebrate that, I think. Which
0: is fantastic. And, and we're talking about value here. What role does Natural England have in developing valuation models across the natural landscape?
1: Well, so um, we, we are engaged with, with, with some of that. We do have some environmental economists who, who work with us. And so we're constantly engaged with government in these discussions. And indeed, one of our economists uh, was a member of the team working with Professor Sapatha Das Gupta on the on the economics review. So we're embedded in these discussions and advise government on how best to not only undertake some of these valuation exercises, but then also turning them into different ways of of looking at those particular elements of the natural system. And actually the peatlands is a good example where over recent months, um, government has moved to create a very substantial new fund, uh, many tens of millions of pounds to be used to restore these ecosystems. And in part that is because they're really interesting and they're fascinating repositories of biodiversity But also, you know, understanding that they've got huge value for reducing flood risk and rivers running clear and catching carbon, all of which have become, you know, quite pressing government priorities during recent times. And so we very much do work in that space of trying to draw the connections between these different uh, elements, uh, you know, the, the natural diversity, the economic valuation, and then what we can do. To protect and restore.
0: Once the valuation methodology is, is 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 settled on, are you also engaged within how corporates and other organizations might bring their usage of natural capital onto their balance sheets?
1: We we need to be doing more of that, I think, um because there is a, a very big opportunity, I think, in drawing in more private sector finance for nature recovery. But what we will need to do to enable that to happen at scale Um, is to get better at management and valuation and to be able to create the uh, structures through which the money can flow. Uh, So, for example, various airlines, controversially, but they're doing it, they're looking for offsets, uh, carbon offsets. Would it be possible to find a credible way for some of that money to be deployed in the recovery of England's woodlands and peatlands? I don't know. Um, But those are the kinds of questions that probably could do Um, with some more scrutiny uh, to the point where we can be much clearer and more certain about what good outcomes would look like. And, you know, that would be a benefit for for, for the environment, but of course, also a benefit for people making those investments so that they know that they actually have done some good rather than done something that may be, you know, to some eyes uncertain or questioned in a way that they can't give all of the answers
0: yeah, isn't that sort of economic valuation work really critical yeah. to yeah. driving solutions and innovative yeah. finance yeah. and investment structures yeah, that help exactly. move the needle on this? So it, yeah. are you aware of timelines that we're setting to 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 really arrive at workable conclusions?
1: I don't think there's any 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 timelines that have been set, but what you can detect now is a very significant level of activity with lots of different people now paying attention to it. And it's not just the environmentalists anymore. It's the investors and it's the big corporates. So that is changing too uh, very, very quickly. And and again, to be welcomed uh, as as part of, you know, the necessary changes we need to make. So there's a lot going on there. And um, over the coming years, I think we will see, you know, some some significant shifts in, in how these things are being put together in terms of, you know, the deployment of capital, recovery of nature and how those things are then understood to be adding value the um, the thing to add though to all of that is that you know you don't necessarily have to go down this route of attracting private sector finance as the only thing which is going to be able to help solve these problems you know once, once you've done the valuation and you know this is true with peatlands again as a good example once you've done the valuation then it's not only a question of, of how you attract the money in to be able to restore and protect those systems. It's also a way in which you get different regulatory decisions. Uh, and so, you know, government recently laid uh, some new regulations to heavily restrict the burning of, of certain peatlands in England, um, which were being burnt on an annual basis. And, you know, part of the reason why that particular decision was taken was, you know, this emerging value Uh, that was being explained uh, around these systems, not only the fact they're very kind of interesting ecologically.
0: Well, it raises a very important point, doesn't it, around the value of of preservation as well as enhancement. And where do you strike the balance between that? Because we need to preserve what we've got. We do. As well as invest in enhancing new and other habitats.
1: We do. And, um, well, this is... Another very significant shift that's occurred in in the last five years in, in the conservation world is the insertion of this new phrase, which, you know, it's very simple and therefore people hardly notice it. But these days we talk very much about nature recovery, whereas five years ago we talked very much about conservation. And so conservation implies hanging on to what you've got. Nature recovery has got a whole different connotation to it. It's about putting back a lot of what's gone. And so, you know, this then, in part, is built upon the realisation of how valuable nature is to society and the economy in practical ways, as well as those moral and aesthetic ways. And as a result of that, you can then make the case that we don't have enough nature anymore, thereby invoking the idea of nature recovery, So, you know, a few years back, you know, nature, yes, we'll hang on to some last little bits as a kind of a museum collection. That was one approach because, you know, it didn't seem to have much value. Whereas now we're saying, actually, we need more nature to underpin food and water security, carbon capture, public health and well-being. Therefore, we need more of it. And you you find these things kind of rolling together. So that economic valuation piece and that understanding of the practical values flip yes. the discussion to the point now where we're talking about recovery rather than hanging on to what we've got you know I, I say these things um because um they're kind of almost obvious and but they're not uh if you look back um a few years and actually not too many years just to see how quickly this has changed
0: yes and are we in a position of balancing then different land uses because when we talk about the recovery of nature are we really talking about the reclaiming of land currently used for agricultural purposes, yeah. given our heavy reliance on agriculture?
1: Some, probably. Um, I mean, you recognising that, you know, quite a lot of the land, I think, varies from place to place, but quite a lot of the land, uh, it is in agriculture, but it's not producing a lot of food. Some landscapes, the amount of food going in to feed sheep, for example, on very marginal upland pasture there's more food going up the hill to feed the sheep than's coming down in form of lamb later on mm. you know but it's agriculture and so you might say to yourself actually you know is that better used to mm. deliver some other benefits that society needs and so food is certainly a benefit that society needs but there are other benefits not having flooding so much catching carbon all the things we've talked about already uh, that you might equally say should be incentivized and that's not to say that people Stop using that land, uh, but they stop using it maybe in the way that they have been. And indeed, this is the whole premise behind the new policy here the idea of public money for public goods and switching the subsidy regime to be paying for those public goods. And, you know, the services which are those public goods carbon capture, river water quality, you know, they don't appear in the market. You can't buy them in the market. You can buy food in the market. And this is then the definition of a public good, as, as the economists would define it, is to um, be highlighting something which is good for everybody, but which isn't subject to a market transaction, not yet, anyway. So, do
0: we need more government intervention to create different types of incentive, financial instruments, and 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 partnerships, public to private partnerships yes. that help then create? a market based on our shared view of value.
1: Yes, I mean, that, that's part of it. It doesn't have to be a market. It can be an initiative that delivers yeah. an outcome and it could be delivering value for the partners involved. It may not finish up being sold in the market, though. You know, the, the, there's different ways of, of looking at all of this, but the, the key point is that it will be a multiplicity of approaches involving a multiplicity of actors And there will be different models that will work differently in different landscapes and under different circumstances. And that point about partnerships that you just made is is really the critical one. And this is why recently we have evolved the the mission of Natural England. We now say that our task is to be building partnerships for nature's recovery for, for all of the reasons that we're talking about now. And so that's kind of where we've put ourselves. And as a government agency, you know, we're working with a very wide range of, of different interests, some of them in the private sector, like the water companies and house builders and farm businesses, and some of them in the official sector, like the Environment Agency and the Department of Transport and the Ministry of Defense. And you know, our job really is is to is to bring those and others together to, to be doing this complicated job of bending the historic curve of decline into one of recovery, uh, which now is, you know, it's it's a government policy aim, which is which is an amazing thing.
0: And do you see natural England there as a catalyst for change?
1: Exactly that. Yes, that's yes. exactly it. That exactly it, Josephine. It's um you know this is our convening role and being able to bring people together and to catalyze conversations. That's definitely a big part of, of what we can increasingly bring, especially now the policy mix is becoming much richer. You know, the new agricultural policy, the idea of biodiversity net gain, some of the actions uh, that are now being backed by government on trees and peatlands and, you know, the uh, ambitions for the, for the water sector and rivers. I mean, all of these things, they add up to quite a, a, a strong body of, of um, different uh, different tools and initiatives. And so for us to be able to work with lots of different partners and being able to deploy these is um, re- really uh, where we can add a lot of value
0: do you have much involvement of younger voices in that space? Is there a kind of way to hand down these? Because obviously this has all been changing so much in the past few years and talking about the valuation of nature and its kind of intrinsic value and also our organic feeling towards it. Somewhat,
1: Tilly, um, but not not in a particularly structured or explicit way. So we have quite a lot of young staff, actually, which is great. Mm -hmm. People you know, in the early part of their careers who were coming to Natural England. And I think over the last couple of years, I think the um, the organisation has looked like a, a more attractive place to work as we've begun to crystallise the mission and to, you know, work with this new and emerging policy ambition. I think it's looked more like somewhere where people would want to go. Um, so I, th- I think that's helpful. You know, we're not in the NGO space um, in the sense of, you know, being campaigners who are advocating for policy and therefore you know I, I think we would see that we'd have less need for that very explicit gathering in of of voices from uh, you know different sectors although you know we do strive to to have as much diversity in the organization as is you know there in society more widely in, in terms of you know all the different things you'd expect so we we, we are trying that as part of how you know we're we're, we're taking the organisation forward, but we don't have a youth council um, like you might have at RSPB mm-hmm. or Friends of the Earth, and maybe that's something we should look at. However, um, to you know be bringing more of that in, I think if there was a place for that, it would be more in the policy making side as well as the delivery side, because you know mm-hmm. that's where a lot of the decisions are being shaped and. Um, The impact of uh, those school strikes and the youth voice from that route actually has been absolutely huge.
0: Mm.
1: And so, you know, it's not as if um, there is no influence there, far from it, actually. It's quite profound.
0: Well, there you go, Tilly. There's a challenge. There's a challenge for you. (laughs) Just (laughs) slip in my CV. (laughs) So so Tony, I mean, maybe we could just finish on how you see the role of natural England then evolving in line with this very fast paced, highly dynamic environment and focus on biodiversity.
1: Well, that's a good, good, good question too, Josephine. So, um, like pretty much everybody else, I, I I think you know we we have to embrace a, a, a lot of creativity, a lot of flexibility, um, be quite kind of comfortable with uncertainty, be willing to experiment. You know, and, and the, these are phrases and ideas that don't naturally come to a government regulator. I have to say, who's <laughs> kind of you know quite quite a. a, a a structured body that would be, you know, quite kind of um, nervous about doing things that weren't in its, you know, immediate experience and, you know, very codified. Um, And that in turn relies upon, you know, the politicians and, and the government machine being relaxed about, you know, some of those approaches. And, you know, this is not about being reckless or not being very careful with public money, which, of course, we must be. Um, but just understanding that actually we've now moved into a different phase where, you know, mm. is fast moving, quite a lot of it is uncertain and, you know, all the ideas haven't been tried yet. And, you know, given the complexity, uh, there's no one-size-fits-all formula, which requires a little bit of thinking outside the box now and again. But, you know, from what I've seen of, of the Natural England team, over the last couple of years that they seem very much up for that and uh, are indeed already doing it and some of the things that we've done over the last couple of years um, well some of them have been very long burns before that you know the, these are new big ideas that are being trialed that are working uh, you know the, the declaration of the new national nature reserve in Dorset last year that was a natural England initiative in the end and the establishment of the Great Fen project here in Cambridgeshire, again, another natural England initiative started some years ago. What we're doing in the Somerset levels to create very significant wetlands down there through collaboration with different partners. Again, you know, this is this is work that um you know has not really been done before. And so, you know, I'm of every confidence that that we can rise to this challenge and make the most of this 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 very special moment that we're in, where finally the, the world seems to be waking up and the penny is dropping and you know i always think of england as being you know the place where in many respects the modern world was created i mean this is where we invented intensive industrial agriculture um, in the 1700s 1800s and of course it's the cradle of the industrial revolution it was the first country to urbanize in the world england and if you look at the big trends now that are shaping the world, it's like fossil-fueled industrialization, intensive agriculture, urbanisation. These are all the things that have created the environmental crisis in different ways. And so could England be the place where we show how you can have a revolution, which is an ecological one, and do all the things that societies must do in bringing comfort and security to the people, but at the same time recovering the environment? And so, if we can't do it in England, where can we do it? Is my question. Well,
0: that's a great um, place to, to to finish and a great call to action, Tony. <laughs> you've you've very much put yourself in the spotlight, even more so with that. Uh, rallying call <laughs> for Natural England and England itself as as the leader here. And with COP26 and COP15 on the horizon, um, I'm sure you're going to rise to the challenge. Thank you so much for your time pleasure. today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed it.